This is episode 227 of That Shakespeare Life. That Shakespeare Life is supported in part by listeners just like you who joined our listener community on Patreon. You can join us as a patron right now at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. So this is in 1575. And uh, the fireworks display is in Kenilworth in Leicestershire. And the fireworks display is described as a blaze of burning darts flying to and fro, leams of stars curescent, streams and hail of fiery sparks, lightnings of wildfire, a water and land, flight and shot of thunderbolts, all with such continuance, terror and vehemency that the heavens thundered, the waters surged, the earth shook. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. The technology of explosions to celebrate or mark an occasion of jubilation that we know today as fireworks was a new thing for Shakespeare's lifetime. Shakespeare mentions the word firework only twice in his works, once in relation to a fight in Henry VIII and another time in relation to a show or pageant in Love's Labor's Lost. Our guest this week, Simon Warrett, is the author of a book on the history and science behind fireworks, and he joins us today to share exactly how they worked for Shakespeare's lifetime, which celebrations were held using fireworks, and exactly what people of the 16th century thought about this wild and exotic light display. Simon Waird is Professor of the History of Science in the Department of Science and Technology Studies at University College London. Previously, he taught in the History Department at the University of Washington, Seattle. He is the author of two books with the University of Chicago Press, one called Fireworks, published in 2010, and the other called Thrifty Science in 2019. See more about Simon Waird and his work into the history of science and fireworks at our show notes. Hello, Simon. Welcome to the show. Hi, Cassie. Hello. Very nice to be here. So what technology was available in the 16th century to actually produce fireworks? Well, uh, there are lots of different technologies available, but of course, the most important one was gunpowder. So sulfur and saltpeter and charcoal mixed together in just the right amount to produce uh, an explosion. I think people are pretty familiar with gunpowder. It's still around today. People still use it to make fireworks. The thing I think is fascinating in the period is that people added things to fireworks to do things that we wouldn't necessarily think you could do today. So, for example, they thought that if you coloured the gunpowder different colours, it would change the effect. So if you used red, if you made it red, if you added things like sandalwood, it would make the gunpowder stronger. We don't believe that to be the case today, but people in the 16th, 17th century did. And the reason they thought red would do that is because it was associated with Jesus Christ's blood, which was the a, a material that had incredible redemptive powers. So anything red would be used to renew and re- redeem things. And that's why you do corrections in red even today, because that comes from monks drawing 
annotating manuscripts in red. So there's some really interesting things added to the mixtures that they use to make fireworks. It is gunpowder, but it's also you know things like that. So you mentioned there were different technologies. What was available besides gunpowder? Well, it's it's actually a pretty simple affair. So so you're only working with pasteboard and paper, brown paper, wooden sticks, you know, very simple stuff, but you're wrapping them up and and uh, kind of sculpting your fireworks in very ingenious ways. So you're producing a pretty amazing effect out of some quite simple ingredients. And and even today, I mean, we we use a lot more uh, chemicals, different chemicals today to produce effects in in fireworks. But those basic ingredients are still pretty similar. So how are fireworks different from cannon fire since they're both based on gunpowder? Well, they're they're essentially the same, but um, it's about controlling your explosions. When you just blow up gunpowder to to fire a cannonball, say, you want to get the maximum bang for your buck. And uh, the cannon is designed to enable that. With a firework, what you want to do is to slow down the burning to a point where it's producing an explosion, but in a very controlled way so that you can make your your firework move in a particular way. So in a rocket, for example, the design of the rocket is such that that the gunpowder burns relatively slowly, but it still produces a a flame and and sparks, and that creates a thrust that makes the, the rocket move. But essentially, they are the same thing. And in the 16th, 17th century, there was lots of crossover. So people would uh, use cannon in fireworks displays. So they would have salutes. And they talked about that the people who who did fireworks were usually in the artillery. So they would spend their days fighting wars and training to use cannon. And then their recreation or you know, what they would do for, for celebrations would be to set off to make and set off fireworks. So they talked about it as being about arte et marte, so so art and war, kind of two sides of the same coin. We use the term rocket's red glare in the national anthem here in the US, and that's one reason we celebrate our Independence Day with fireworks in memoriam to the events of that song. But were rockets and fireworks the same thing for Shakespeare's lifetime? Uh, it's a great question. It's something that I spend a lot of time <laughs> wondering about because one of the things that's lovely about fireworks is there's actually amazing continuity. There are very, very old technology that we still have around today. Um, there aren't many, can't be that many technologies that are like that. But what they mean to people and how they're used changes over time, obviously. And I think the main difference between, say, the, even the 19th century when the, the rockets red glare was referred to between that and the earlier period is that in the earlier time people were much less familiar with fireworks so if the the government the court might put on a big fireworks display and that could potentially be the only you you might only see that once in a lifetime so they they had sort of squibs and crackers and things in in um, celebrations but a big fireworks display was a rare thing and in England, at least, they were first introduced in Shakespeare's lifetime, really, bigger bigger displays. So they were quite an unusual experience. And people were afraid of them. So there was a, um, a firework in 1575, and uh, one of the, for Queen Elizabeth I, and one of the visitors said, uh, I'm quoting him here, for my part, hardy as I am, it made me vengeably afraid. 
So even though he's a tough courtier, he was still pretty, pretty scared at this experience because it was an unusual thing. There's another account of fireworks from Shakespeare's time that said that the display was, and I'm quoting you again, terrible to those that have not been in like experiences and indeed strange to them that understood it not. So, so it was also quite an advanced technology that people didn't necessarily, you know, they didn't know how things were done. So that's why it seemed strange. Were any of these versions of fireworks known to be used for producing special effects in theaters around London during Shakespeare's lifetime? I mean, I know famously we've got Shakespeare burning down the globe as a result of cannon fire. And I just wonder if he was trying to be innovative there or if that was just a an industry standard that went wrong. I think it was pretty common to have fireworks on the stage. Obviously, they were very aware of the risks, but risk was part of what made fireworks exciting, and still is. So, so having um, having lots of kind of bangs and flashes is a good thing. And they used they used fireworks on you know, on stage uh, in displays. Uh, fireworks originated as a kind of way of uh, simulating the Holy Spirit coming down in a church. So you would have a gunpowder spark emitting squib or rocket or something on a on a line that came down from the the dome of the church into the to ground level um, and that was used in church plays to signify the spirit the holy spirit coming down and over time that that became a secular effect in in plays about uh, you know kings and queens and so on so that sort of thing you would have and then whenever they wanted to have a storm you know if they wanted to have lightning bolts they could they could use that kind of effect as well so, so there were limits because you had to be careful, but they definitely were using fireworks in, in on the stage at that time. I never would have thought of fireworks as a way to retell that story of, of Pentecost and the, the flame over people's heads. But that after you're describing that image of it coming down from, from the ceiling, well, yeah, I see how they could put that together. But I think of it as such a celebratory thing now that's neat to see that that's where it started. Yeah. Were there ever public fireworks displays held for official functions during Shakespeare's lifetime? You mentioned one at least happening for Elizabeth I, but were there others? There were. So there were two different kinds of displays. There were things that you would you would use fireworks for occasions of public rejoicing. And typically in England, in Shakespeare's lifetime, there are two of those. There's the Lord Mayor Show. Where they, which celebrated the Lord Mayor of London, and they would have barges that floated down the Thames, and they would be adorned with banners and flags and pennants, and and probably have musicians, and they would have uh, master gunners, so people who worked for the in the Tower of London for for the artillery, they would be setting off fireworks as the as the barges progressed, and then the other thing was the Queen's Day, which was the anniversary of the Queen's ascension to the throne. And they would celebrate that with bonfires and feasts and um, ringing church bells, and then maybe fireworks as well. So we had a few records of people having fireworks displays for that. And of course, um, after the the gunpowder plot, Guy Fawkes, uh, there was a remembrance for that that happened fairly soon afterwards. And that over time came to be celebrated with fireworks. And it still is today in, in England on the 5th of November. So there were public fireworks displays. The display put on for Queen Elizabeth was much more of a private affair. 
Elizabeth is being wooed by Dudley, uh, her, um, the Earl of Leicester, and um, his brother, Ambrose, is the uh, Master General of the Ordnance. So he's in charge of the artillery, which is very handy because it means you can get him to put on very fancy fireworks displays for your would-be girlfriend and that's exactly what he did so so um there were a couple of very uh, sort of fancy fireworks put on in the 1570s for elizabeth but those were sort of invitation only so the regular folks uh well there's 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 nice stories of people being um pretty scared by them uh and and rockets going into the village and setting light to people's roofs uh and them not knowing what on earth was going on uh, so, I can just so imagine, were, like you're in your little quiet village, and all of a sudden this firework comes screaming through, and you're going, "Oh my gosh!" I can only imagine the things that got said about Dudley after that. <laughs> exactly, and if if the people, if the courtiers who were there were finding it, you know, frightening, you can imagine what it'd be like for someone who had no idea it was even happening. Yeah, there's an amazing um, letter which describes that firework done for Elizabeth. If we have time, I have a short, little short extract of it because it's a lovely description of a firework from the time and it's all the language is almost... Is oh, like we wouldn't a, dare miss this opportunity. Please share it with us. So this is in 1575 and uh, the fireworks display is in Kenilworth in Leicestershire and the fireworks display is described as a blaze of burning darts flying to and fro, leams of stars curescent, Streams and hail of fiery sparks, lightnings of wildfire, a water and land, flight and shot of thunderbolts, all with such continuance, terror and vehemency that the heavens thundered, the waters surged, the earth shook. So sounds pretty, mate, pretty good. Yes, it's pretty intense, for sure. In his article for The Conversation, Simon writes about the field of pyrotechnics in the early modern period, citing an image of a man wearing a castle shaped like a hat and holding what appears to be a flaming artichoke. Simon, can you explain this entire image for us and why artichokes were useful for pyrotechnics? Well, that's an image from a book that celebrated a festival that happened in um, Nuremberg. And it's distinctive because... Uh, people would dress up in costumes and throw fireworks around or even include fireworks in their in their costume. The festival itself was a was a sort of folk festival in the period in terms of the artichoke fireworks so so what you see is a picture of a guy holding what looks like an artichoke and there are flames coming up the top. I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> why, <laughs> and here I thought you artichoke? were going to solve this right. mystery no, for no, us. No. So, so the only thing, the only thing I would say, I mean, it's it's a great idea. Why why not an artichoke? But one thing that you did have quite often in displays in in Shakespeare's time were what they call wild men. So people who would dress up, they would cover themselves in vine leaves like greenery and wear a hat made out of twigs. And then they would go around with um, fire clubs. And they were a bit like jesters. They, they sort of were there to control the crowd, essentially, um, but also to entertain them in the process. And that figure, the, the wild man or the green man, is a really old character in English folklore. And if you go around England today, you'll see there's loads of pubs that are called the Green Man, and that's a reference to that character that you would see in in festivals. So that idea of having sort of vegetation on fire, you know, that that was a thing in the period. So so maybe that's what the artichoke is. <laughs> I don't know. 
<laughs> it sounds like a decent conclusion to me. I think I, I'll take that. Were there fireworks of the 16th and 17th century? You mentioned earlier that they would add sandalwood to make them red. And so I'm just wondering, were there fireworks that would, was it multicolored when they would launch it? Or were they able to control the various sizes and shapes like we know fireworks to be today are, are pretty stylized were they that way for shakespeare's lifetime or was it just loud colorful explosions it's very very difficult to say actually because on the one hand i think they didn't have the same kind of color that we have the way you produce color in fireworks today is you use metallic salts which you combine with a with an oxidizer that's very powerful and it produces this sort of intense color and they didn't, and if you just use regular gunpowder, you won't get that. You, you can't get that kind of intensity. But they do talk about including colour. So not just the powder, but but so for example, they would add verdigris, which is copper rust. And if you burn that, it produces a green flame. They must have been quite pale colours, but nevertheless, they thought they were multicoloured. But they are quite different to fireworks now because they worked on the idea that fireworks were. They were different kinds of fireworks depending on the four elements. So Aristotle has four elements, air, earth, fire, and water. And there were fireworks of the air, so rockets, fireworks of the earth, so things like wheels. Uh, obviously, all fireworks are fire. And then they also had, which we don't have, aquatic fireworks, so fireworks of water. So they would be basically fireworks like like candles that you covered in pitch and tar, and they would sink under the water, and then they would come up again and, and spout sparks, and then they would sink down again and come up again and sort of play on the water. And that's a whole sort of area of fireworks that we don't we don't have anymore because we don't believe in Aristotle's elements for a start. Um, it kind of died out in the in the 18th century, really. But certainly in Shakespeare's time, that was a big part of it. I'd love to see that one come back, I think. That sounds exciting. Mm -hmm. Well, I know this is a hugely exciting area of history, and exploring fireworks in the 16th century is definitely something we would like to explore further. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? Well, that's a really good question. I had to have a think about this because there really there isn't much written about fireworks. There's a book that came out relatively recently by a guy called Kevin Salatino called Incendiary Art, and it was published by the Getty Museum in Los Angeles. And that book is about how fireworks have been represented in art over time, over history. And that's a fantastic book. That's one of the things that got me very excited about fireworks as a, as a subject. Another thing is, is a book, it's pretty hard to find, you'd probably have to go to the library to get it, but um, it's called The Shows of London by Richard Altick. And it's a great big coffee table book. And what this guy did was just record all the hundreds of different kinds of spectacles and performances and public rejoicings and, and displays that were going on in London in the 18th century. And it really gives you an amazing sense of what you could go and see, what kinds of spectacles you could experience in this time. If you're interested in fireworks, there's, there's so much uh, that one can get from that book. And the last thing I was thinking about is a book called Disenchanted Night by Wolfgang Schivelbusch. He has a fantastic name, does Wolfgang Schivelbusch. And that's a book about the history of lighting in the night. 
So going from torches on the streets or going from darkness, basically, through torches on the streets to gaslighting to electric lighting. What it's about is the the culture that different kinds of lighting experience allow. So fireworks are one of the ways that we light up the night sky. And there's a whole culture around that. And it's fascinating. And that's just part of a bigger history of what we do in the night, you know, with light and and fire and colour. It's really fascinating. So uh, there's lots of kind of paths one could go down reading that book to explore more. Those are excellent resources. We will link to these as well as to Simon's work in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you stay tuned for the URL for where to find all of these. Now, Simon, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Yes, and I'm very glad. That's a very wise thing because those, of course, are two books that one could just read, you know, endlessly. But the book I I thought I would take is um, a book called Last and First Men by Olaf Stapledon. So it's written in 1930, and it's a regular paperback. It looks like this, and it's about 250 pages. But what it purports to do is to tell the entire history of humanity from now well, from 1930 until the end of the 18th species of humans in like 2 billion years' time. Wow. And it's absolutely mind-blowing. It's an amazing book. But, uh, he's relatively unknown. as a He's a science fiction writer between H.G. Wells and Arthur C. Clarke. He's relatively unknown, but absolutely incredible. And he has uh, sentences like, uh, humans' career on the planet Earth was only a, a, you know, a footnote to their much longer career on Neptune. <laughs> and things like that. Because all of humanity migrates to Neptune in, in like 500 million years. And then, uh, and then most of that 2 billion years is spent on Neptune. So Earth was just a sort of brief stopping point, you know, in the bigger history. And it's really, it's an amazing book. And you can, there's, there's sort of, each page has got just incredible ideas on it. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating read. So not only could you read the whole thing, but in context of knowing what we know about people trying to colonize the moon and things like that, you'd have plenty to ruminate over about, hey, is this actually fiction or are we trying to accomplish these things while you're on your deserted island? So I think exactly. that is a really great selection. You have a lot to do with that for sure. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, a um, couple of things. So. I wrote a book on fireworks, um, came out about 10 years ago. And since then, I did a book um, about the history of recycling called Thrifty Science. So I went from sort of big, expensive spectacles to the very mundane sort of house, everyday household, everyday life type history. And actually, so that's one thing. And then the other thing is the Stapledon. So, so I'm writing a book about Olaf Stapledon as a philosopher, because though he tends to get read as a writer, as a kind of science fiction author, but I think there's much more to it than that. So I'm writing about him as a philosopher of science because he has a very particular understanding of science, which is, as because I'm a historian of science, that's something I you know, always come back to. Well, we will definitely look forward to seeing your next book come out. Simon Warrett, thank you so much for being here today and taking us through the history of fireworks for Shakespeare's lifetime. This has been a really exciting look into explosions and public displays for the life of the Bard. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Custy. It's been great, great pleasure. Thank you. 
If you liked the show today, please be sure to let us know about it. Drop us a comment and a rating on the platform you're listening from today. If you would like to see pictures of fireworks from the 16th century, cannons that might have been used for fireworks displays, as well as images of the Lord Mayor's show and copies of that letter describing the fireworks show for Queen Elizabeth, then be sure to stop by the show notes for today's episode. Inside the show notes, you can see a lot more bonus history content, including visual content that coordinates with the history of fireworks you're learning about today, along with more information about our guest, Simon Warrett, and all the great resources he recommends you use to explore further. Find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 227. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP227. If you enjoy learning about Shakespeare's history here with us each week, then consider joining our listener community on Patreon. You can support the show and get access to bonus content only available inside our patrons area, including video versions of the show, animated versions of Shakespeare's plays, exclusive documentary films, and more. Plus, there are special patron extras like digital downloads and a monthly Shakespeare book club. Explore all the benefits and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. Our show this week is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.